Hi, I'm Jonathan Capehart. If you loved my previous podcast, Cape Up, then you're going to love Cape Up 2.0, or as we're now calling it, Capehart. You'll hear some of the best conversations I have during Washington Post Live events. I'll still be talking to interesting people about a range of subjects, from social issues to the arts to politics. Sometimes we'll do it all with one spectacular guest. That's why we're kicking off Capehart with John Legend. McDonald's had a Black History Month essay competition called Future Black History Makers of Tomorrow. And uh, the, the prompt was, how do you plan to make black history? And my answer was, I'm going to become a successful artist and I'm going to use that success uh, to help my community. John Legend was only 15 years old when he wrote that. Today, he is one of just 16 people and the first black man to reach EGOT status, meaning he's won an Emmy, a Grammy, actually 12 of them, an Oscar, and a Tony. When he's not serving as a coach on NBC's The Voice, he's touring the country and advocating for racial equity. In this conversation, first recorded on October 1st, Legend talks to me about police reform, voting rights, the local issues he hopes to tackle through his new organization called Human Level, and why he's afraid of Ariana Grande. John, welcome to Washington Post Live. Jonathan, it's great to see you. Great to see you too. So let's just jump right on into it. You are best known, obviously, as a singer and a songwriter, but you seem, at least right now, more focused on activism. What, what spurred that pivot? Well, to be honest, I'm still more focused on music. I uh, am in the middle of my uh, Bigger Love tour. I've been writing a lot of music for my next album, which will come next year. So I'm still very, very focused on my day job. But um, I've always believed that uh, musicians and, and other people in the public eye have a unique position where we can try to make the world better using our influence, using our uh, success, our fame, uh, our, our following out there in the world um, to try to turn people's attention toward issues that um, affect all of us. And so um, I looked at people like Harry Belafonte and Paul Robeson and Nina Simone and Mahalia Jackson. And, and I always believed that a musician's uh, role was bigger than just making music, that we had an awesome opportunity and I believe a responsibility to try to make the world a better place. And so I've tried to do that throughout my music career, never giving up my day job, uh, mm -hmm. but, but uh, always believing that I can leverage um, the opportunities that my day job have provided me um, to try to make life better for other people. And I even wrote an essay about this when I was 15 years old. Uh, McDonald's had a Black History Month essay competition called Future Black History Makers of Tomorrow. And uh, the, the prompt was, how do you plan to make black history? And my answer was, I'm going to become a successful artist and I'm going to use that success uh, to help my community. And uh, I said that in 500 words or less. And uh, I'm trying to, uh, you know, live that uh, vision out for myself now. Wow. At 15, you already knew yeah. what you were going, what you were going to do and how you were going to do it. And since you mentioned Nina Simone, I bring this up 
with um, artists all the time when I interview them here on Washington Post yes. Live. And she famously said, an artist's duty is to reflect the times. And so I want to use yes. that, that saying of hers to get you to talk about human level and how human level reflects the times. What inspired you to create that program? Well, we just launched Human Level, and Human Level is focusing in on local government, uh, working in our cities, working in our counties, and saying, on a human level, how do we connect with the issues that the folks in these cities are dealing with? How do we address big systemic issues on a local level? And uh, we started Human Level with an organization called FuseCore, which has been working in cities for a long time, uh, putting fellows into communities, trying to solve problems for the mayor and for the city leaders. And we wanted to have a special focus, thinking about you know what we've all been through over the past two years with COVID, with George Floyd and all these other uh, issues that the nation has been dealing with, but looking at it from a local perspective. How do we deal with the activist community, the organizer community, how do we work with the entire community to listen to the concerns that people are dealing with and then have people whose mission in their roles in local government is particularly to listen and learn and to uh, govern in a way that makes uh, these local uh, governmental systems more equitable. So they're answering questions like, how do we reallocate our budget so we care more about mental health issues than about incarcerating people? How do we uh, make sure that uh, vaccine access is, uh, is throughout the, the city and not just in certain neighborhoods? How do we make sure uh, uh, we look at environmental uh, racism and, and, and the ways that that's affected certain communities? How do we make sure that when we're planning future development and when we're planning uh, uh, zoning and all these other things that we're thinking about everyone in the community, not just the powerful few. So we've hired some amazing folks, amazing fellows in 11 cities, 50 fellows who are going to be in their communities uh, at the behest of the mayors and the, and the city leaders saying, how do we focus on equity uh, from our role here in city government? How do we make sure that these systems are, are responsive to the entire community and are providing the kind of support that the entire community needs. Yeah, and one of the one of those eleven cities is Washington D.C. I also know um, Atlanta and and Birmingham, Alabama. Let me get you to talk about um, the the Free America campaign, which is focused on voting rights. Mm -hmm. What specifically are you doing in that realm? Well, Free America was a campaign we started a while ago. It's funny you mentioned Nina Simone. Uh, when I uh, received the Oscar for Glory, along with my brother Colin, uh, I was on stage and I literally quoted that quote, that it's an artist's duty to reflect the times that we live in. And I also said from that stage that America was the most incarcerated country in the world. And that's the, that's the truth. We incarcerate so many people and uh, at a higher rate than any other major country in the world. And so it's not just a number. Those are families. Those are members of communities and their families are affected. Their communities are affected. And it's also very expensive to do. And so we decided uh, to found Free America as a campaign that where we would one, listen and learn, go around 
visit prisons, visit jails, visit uh, all the stakeholders, and then try to make serious change so that we begin the process of decarcerating, changing the laws, changing the practices. Uh, I personally have supported progressive district attorneys whose goal it is to uh, to think differently about incarceration and how we use it. And um, we've, over the last several years, made a lot of headway when it comes to uh, changing policies and procedures that have uh, locked up far too many people in this country. But particularly when you talk about voting rights, we've also focused on making sure that people who are incarcerated and formerly incarcerated uh, are able to have a voice in our elections. Um, in Florida, we helped pass Amendment 4, which uh, made it possible for over a million people who had felony convictions to be uh, able to get their right to vote back. And uh, we've been working throughout the country on voting rights uh, legislation in various states um, who had uh, restrictive uh, rules around people who had felony convictions. And we're trying to include these folks in our franchise to make sure that everyone has their voices heard in their uh, local elections, their, their national elections. We're, we're, we're all represented by the people that we elect and uh, we're all affected by the decisions they make. And so we believe everyone should have the right to vote and have a say in those elections, even if they've made a mistake, even if they've been convicted of a crime. You know, I'm going to put a pin in voting rights for a second, because when you're talking about um, um, the formerly incarcerated, but also mass incarceration, it brings to mind a que an audience question that we have from California, from Marsha uh, Wichergan, and I'm sorry if I'm mispronouncing your name, Marsha, um, but she asks, what's your present view of restorative or transformative justice for our criminal injustice system? Well, I believe that it's important. I believe uh, we've seen pilot programs throughout the country where folks are uh, considering alternatives to prison and jail. And as I said before, we lock up far too many people and it really doesn't solve the underlying issues. It doesn't solve uh, the issues that drove people to crime in the first place. It doesn't uh, uh, heal them or make them whole. It doesn't even heal or make the, uh, the survivors of crime whole. So we need to think about different ways to address when people harm each other. How do we deal with that? How do we bring about a system that is restorative and healing for the entire community and, uh, and one that, that uh, focuses on the long-term health of the community? I think locking so many people up has been so bad for too many communities, and we need to think of alternative ways to uh, deal with harm in the future. So now let's talk about, about voting because, you know, here in Washington, there's been an effort to try to do something on the national level to protect the voting rights of, of citizens on a nationwide basis, and yet nothing has happened. How disappointed are you that nothing has happened at the national level? I'm so disappointed. I'm so disappointed that uh, the filibuster, which is not in our constitution, uh, is not, uh, is not uh, a, a, a law that was uh, uh, dreamt up by our founding fathers. It's just a practice that uh, has evolved over the years, and it is what is getting in the way of us passing voting rights 
uh, in a way that is really accessible to everybody in our country. And we have to understand that the enemies of voting rights uh, are on the march uh, all across the country and states all across the country. They're finding every which way they can to intimidate, to suppress, to make it difficult for people to vote. And we're letting the filibuster get in the way of us defending those rights. And if we don't defend those rights now, who knows what our next elections are going to look like? They're going to try to find ways to uh, override the will of the people if they don't like the results of the election. They're trying to get new secretaries of state and uh, and fi- and allowing legislatures to override the will of the people. They're finding all these ways to uh, suppress and 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 quiet the will of the people, and we're not doing anything about it. People who believe in voting rights need to take an aggressive position in defending uh, voting rights. And that includes getting rid of the filibuster. Um, Let me get you on police reform. Another um, bill, well, it's not even a bill. It passed the House. The George Floyd Justice and Policing Act passed the House, but then it goes over to the Senate where negotiations died mid-September. How disappointed are you that the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act hasn't become law of the land? I am not that disappointed because I, one, I didn't expect it to pass. Um, I believe that anything that they would pass on a federal level that would get enough Senate votes wasn't going to be very useful anyway. Uh, and secondly, um, I believe that most of the action when it comes to policing is on a local level. And that's why we care so much about human level and, and all the things that we're doing on a local level because Budgets are being set on a local level. So many other decisions about policing, negotiations with the unions, all those things are usually happening on a local level. And so that's why we care so much about uh, human level and trying to uh, make sure we have voices uh, for equity, voices for the community in city government, because we know that so much of what's going to affect people's lives is going to be decided by their mayor, their city council, their uh, police chief, all these folks who are uh, local officials uh, who are going to make important decisions that affect so many people's lives. That's why I get involved in district attorney elections. All these things uh, have much more uh, 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 impact on a local level than anything they would pass federally. I have to say, um, not only did you surprise me by that answer, but you actually screwed my head back on on straight because you're right. Most of the big decisions are made at the at the local level. So thank you for that. But I asked you about voting. Well, rights. it's interesting because, you know, there was a lot of controversy around people talking about defund the police last year. But all this is is a conversation around budgets and these budgets are set on a local level. And, and so when you're saying, well, what are our priorities when we have a certain finite amount of money to spend, how do we spend it? And we want voices in the room that are saying, why don't we spend it on this and not that? And um, that will include, I think, taking some of the budget away from uh, policing and putting it into mental health, taking some of the money away from jailing people, putting it into uh, other uh, investments that could make it so that we'd have lower crime and a healthier community, a safer community uh, all around. So these are the kinds of things we want to have a voice in. And we wanna have people with a, with a, an eye toward equity and a sensibility toward equity to have a voice in their local communities. Uh, and that's why we founded Human Level. Mm-hmm. Um, 
again, I asked about those about police reform and and voting rights because there these are conversations that are happening at the national at the national level, and in particular, you know, they're important to the Biden Harris administration, to President yes, Biden, and and, and, President and, and to be clear, Jonathan, and to be clear. Uh, I do believe that voting rights needs to be um, uh, handled on the national level because uh, these different states are uh, putting all these laws in place. But the national government has the ability to set a floor for voting rights to to where none of these states can go below that floor. Mm -hmm. And uh, I believe that the uh, voting rights legislation that the federal government uh, is trying to pursue is really important for that and could do a lot to make sure that the states don't go below that floor. Mm -hmm. But when it comes to criminal justice, police reform, I do believe most of the action is local and state. And that's why we found a human level. That's one of the reasons we found a human level, because we believe that those decisions are being made at that level. And that's where the impact would be. This podcast is sponsored by Monarch Money. Are you saving to reach your financial goals? Reaching those goals isn't just about getting more money, but by managing what you have. And the best way to manage your money? Monarch Money. Monarch Money is a new kind of finance app that's intuitive, powerful, ad-free, and takes the headaches out of budgeting. Try it free when you go to monarchmoney.com slash podcast. Monarch puts all your accounts, investments, transactions, and finances at your fingertips. With a complete view of your finances, you'll gain insights on your spending and find new ways to save. Plus, Monarch lets you customize your dashboard, collaborate with your partner, set custom budgets and goals, and track your progress toward them. See why Mint users are turning to Monarch Money and loving it, and why the Wall Street Journal named Monarch Money the best budgeting app overall. Get a 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash podcast. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H money.com slash podcast for your free trial. monarchmoney.com slash podcast. Has the White House done enough, in your view, to protect voting rights at the national level? Well, the bottom line is we keep hitting this same roadblock. Kirsten Sinema, uh, Joe Manchin, folks that um, keep standing by this uh, relic of Jim Crow, uh, the filibuster, and uh, they don't believe voting rights are important enough to uh, to get rid of the filibuster or at least change the uh, the use of the filibuster. So I know Joe Biden wants this uh, voting rights legislation to pass. I know Kamala Harris wants this uh, voting rights legislation to pass. But I don't know how we get to yes if we can't get Kirsten Sinema and Joe Manchin uh, to get to yes. And that will involve at least changing the filibuster. And they have to believe it's important enough uh, to do that. And clearly they don't believe that yet. And, and, and the they you're talking about are Senators Sinema and Manchin. These, these outstanding senators yeah. that we're waiting on to believe that voting rights are important enough to uh, get rid of this Jim Crow relic, the filibuster. Have you, have, I mean, Vice President Harris uh, has been charged with uh, protecting the right to vote, to vote, to safeguard the right to vote. Have you had a conversation with the Vice President about these issues? Not since she's been elected. Well, not since the inauguration. That was the last time I saw her. Um, but we're going to continue uh, to talk to senators, talk to uh, the White House and, and do whatever we can. We're all on the same team when it comes to what we want to accomplish 
uh, uh, with voting rights. But obviously, there are roadblocks, and uh, we've got to figure out how to get get through them. Um, I could talk to you about politics all day, but I want to talk. <laughs> I want to talk about your music. <laughs> so you did, you mentioned. You mentioned earlier that you're working on on another album. You released an album last year, which you mentioned called Bigger Bigger Love. You're in the middle of that tour right now. Um, the songs are written prior to to the pandemic. Why did you wait to share this project? Well, the Bigger Love album came out in June of 2020, uh, right in the height of people quarantining and. Uh, we also had just had the George Floyd uh, murder, um, and there was just so much going on in the world. But I had so much music that I wanted to give to the world. I had worked on it most of 2019 and early 2020, and I believed that it was ready for the world and that it could be uplifting and inspiring for people who, who were going through a lot during that time. And so I put it out back in, in, in June of 2020, on Juneteenth, actually. And uh, I really am proud of the body of work that we created. But it was so weird putting all that out and then not being able to tour. And <laughs> finally, um, you know, with the uh, vaccines being available to everyone in the country, and we felt like um, now was the time when we felt safe and that it was safe for our fans to come to a show. And um, so we're finally on tour. We're coming to DC very soon. And uh, we're, we're having a great time out there. It's so fun. It's just a love fest, a, 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 a night full of connection and, and positive energy. And um, people have been having such a great time on the tour. And I'm personally having a great time myself. Well, John, I mean, you could say that about any of your concerts pre-pandemic. <laughs> that is joy and love and, and optimism. But I'm wondering, in the post-pandemic era, is, is the joy sort of off the charts? How, how do you feel um, the change in, in the audience, if at all, pre-pandemic versus post-pandemic? Well, I think the atmosphere is celebratory and we set the, uh, set the tone as soon as we get out there and, and start the show. And, you know, I don't know, it's hard for me to compare now versus several years ago, the last time I toured, but uh, the, the atmosphere is definitely celebratory. I think people are excited to be back in a venue together and enjoying music together. A lot of people have told me that this was their first show that they've been to uh, since everything uh, was postponed or canceled or locked down last year. And so I think people feel good being in a room together. Uh, they still, you know, need to take precautions. We, we say you shouldn't come to the show if you're not vaccinated. Some cities are requiring vaccinations uh, to come to the show. But I'm just saying on a personal level, you shouldn't get in a crowd, uh, particularly on any indoor venues, uh, without being vaccinated. And um, we suggest everyone is safe and takes the necessary precautions. But if you do that, you can go out and enjoy yourself and feel good about it. And we're celebrating together. I have another audience question for you. This comes um, from Eileen Brown in Connecticut. She asks, in your opinion, does uplifting music spur activism in ordinary people? You see what you did there, Eileen. <laughs> <laughs> I always love an ordinary people pun. 
It never, it never fails. Uh, but uh, I believe that it's a kind of a symbiotic relationship between um, activism and activists and, uh, and, and artists, because I think we as artists are all inspired by the activists. Um, the, the messages that they're putting out there, I think, uh, inspired a lot of artists to create different music and put different messages out in their music. But then also, uh, when we create this music, people use it as soundtracks to them marching. They use it as, uh, inspiration, uh, to galvanize people and bring them together, having them sing in the same song. Uh, I know my song Glory is just like that. It was inspired by, folks in Ferguson marching and, and inspired by Dr. King and, 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 and all those great folks who have over the years stood up for, for civil rights, stood up for the right of black people to be treated as human in this country. And, and we wrote that song responding to them, inspired by them. And then they turn around and march with the song that we wrote inspired by them. So it really is a back and forth where we're energizing each other. Let me get you to um, talk a little bit more about something you posted on Instagram where you, you wrote, it's important for us to continue to show the world the fullness of what it is to be black and human. Absolutely. And I was talking about that when I was releasing my album last year. And, you know, I was thinking about, well, these are dark times and we're, we're marching in the streets and, and uh, we're having this racial reckoning. Um, but I also knew that I created music that was inspiring and full of joy and love. And I know that's part of our experience, too. And so I didn't, you know, I didn't want to go back and rewrite an album of protest anthems in that moment. I wanted to say, hey, this is part of who we are, too. And it's part of us being fully human. And um, hopefully the music was inspiring and, up and uplifting in that way. Um, but black artists... Um, you know, we care about what's going on in the streets. We care about the struggles that we're all a part of and, and, uh, and our families are affected by, but we also, um, write about the full human experience and, and we shouldn't limit our art to, to writing, uh, only about these political struggles that we're going through. Um, I, we, you're on tour right now with Bigger Love. Um, and I'm no musician, so I don't know if you can do these two things at the same time, be on tour, but also work on another album. Do you have another album in the works? Well, I spent a lot of the earlier part of this year uh, working on the next album, and, and I don't know when that's going to come out. We're not finished with it yet, but I've been on tour for the past month, and I've taken a break from working on the album uh, since I've been on tour. But as soon as I get done, I'm going to finish the album up and hopefully we'll put it out uh, sometime next year. Which do you like? Which do you like more? Being I, creating I love music both. that gets you on tour or getting on tour? I love both. Honestly, it's a very different experience, though. And there's there's a lot of joy that I get from actually creating the song. So being in that room, I'm usually with another writer or maybe a couple of other writers. And us coming up with something together that we are really excited about and we're really proud of, there's a euphoria. There's a, you know, it's like a, uh, 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 it's a, a adrenaline hit. It's a, it's a, uh, it, it makes you feel good. And, 
and creating and, and mixing and, and doing all the little things that make the record sound exactly the way you want is a fun process for me. I love it. But I think my favorite is being out there and performing those songs because you feel the energy of the audience. And particularly after this pandemic where we couldn't feel that for so long, I missed it. And uh, I, I love that energy. I love that feeling of us being in the same place and enjoying music together. Have you ever, to, your, to hone in on you know, sort of you and another writer in a room coming up with a song, putting it together, putting the album together, and you feel really good about it in the studio? Have you ever had a song where you felt good about it in the studio, but then you performed it and it didn't land as well as you thought it would with the audience? Well, yes. Well, even even before that, there are songs that you're excited about in that moment that you you wait a week and you're like, eh, I don't love it. So sometimes you just need some distance. So I write a lot of songs. So like this year, I've written like 60, 70 songs that I'm going to narrow down to like 14 or 15 for the next album. So I write a lot of songs. I'm excited every time I finish one, but clearly some of those songs aren't even going to make the album. So they kind of fall in my estimation after a while. And then secondly, uh, some songs don't work as well live. They just don't feel right live, mm -hmm. but they may, may make a good record, but they may not uh, sound great live. You know, put, put those songs that don't make it into the vault. Those could be the lost tapes. Yes. <laughs> For generations. Yes. We'll, we'll always have the lost tapes. Right. I'll be one, like one, uh, Tupac after I pass. I'll have many releases. <laughs> one, one last question for you in the couple minutes that we have left, um, because you got a lot of jobs, um, one of them being um, a coach on NBC's The Voice. Real fast, who do you think will be your biggest competition this season? Well, of course, we're all afraid of Ariana Grande. She is uh, phenomenal as an artist, and she's a really great coach. And she has a massive fan base. And uh, if she's able to deploy them uh, on our uh, voice app to vote, uh, then we're in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> John Ledger, we're going to have to leave it there. We are out of time. Thank you for coming to Washington Post Live. And I hope one day you'll come on my Sunday show so we can keep talking politics. Absolutely, Jonathan. Thank you for all that you're doing. And uh, it's great talking to you. Thanks for listening to Capehart. It's produced by Julie Deppenbrock. We'll have new episodes for you every Tuesday. I'm Jonathan Capehart. You can find me on Twitter at CapehartJ.